the deity of Christ. In the second week, Michael took the uh, humanity of Christ, and now we'll be talking about the work of Christ um, from Article 11, specifically on the, the atonement and uh, penal substitutionary atonement specifically. And, and so we'll use Article 11 as a jumping-off point. So I just want to read that together and confess it together before we get started. If you have your copy of that or there's more in the back. But if you join me in reading this and confessing it together. We affirm that on the cross, Jesus Christ offered himself as a penal substitutionary atonement for the sins of his people, propitiating the wrath of God and satisfying the justice of God, and was victorious over sin, death, and Satan. We deny the death of Jesus Christ was a payment of ransom to Satan, We deny that the death of Jesus Christ was merely an example, merely a victory over Satan, or merely a display of God's moral government. Amen. Let's pray before we go to God's Word. Our good Father, we can't even begin to comprehend you. Your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts. Yet in your good pleasure, you've stooped to lisp to mere children. You've made yourself known to us through the words on the pages of of the Bible. And what a privilege and a joy it is to know something of you. And what unspeakable riches we have because you have in your mercy and justice redeemed a wretched crowd even as we are. You've called us your people, and allowed us to call on you as our God. Grant to us by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning that we could see the sacrifice of Jesus in a greater light and captivate our minds, we pray, in our hearts, that by your truth this morning we can sing the praises of your glorious grace. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand and read God's word, Romans chapter 3. 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. Maybe seated. Many people today would pose the question, what is the greatest problem facing humanity? And many people would give many different answers. Uh, one podcast I listened to is a series of about ten podcasts. It's called The End of the World, and it's about what's called existential risk, these great risks that 
would destroy humanity, ca cause us to go extinct, or in some way just ruin humanity as, as we know it, where we couldn't come back from it. A few of the possibilities are an accidental uh, pandemic. You know, these labs have these viruses and, and somehow one could get out and, and kill us all. Or maybe a physics experiment gone wrong. We've got the, the, the Large Hadron Collider crashing things into each other and you, you don't know what's going to happen maybe. Uh, ar artificial intelligence is, is growing and it could get out of control and, and, and it could uh, decide that it, if, if this computer's job is to make paper clips, it, it's going to take advantage of humanity to make paper clips is, is the illustration that they used. Uh, biotechnology could run away. Uh, natural disaster could happen. So we aren't as safe as we might like to think. That That's the whole premise of the podcast and uh, these existential risks. These are problems facing humanity, and it's fun to listen to these things from a, an unbelieving perspective because they, it, every time there's always a solution, and it's God, and they always take great measures to go all the way around him, and it's very interesting to listen to. So I believe the greatest danger or one of the greatest dangers for humanity lies in two great mis misconceptions. First is that we have far too high a view of ourselves, and the second that we have far too low a view of God. As Luther said to Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too human. In Scripture, God interacts with men from time to time, and, and we get a vision or a sense of what it really means to interact with God, to encounter God when we read these stories. Uh, I, I like Job, the end of Job, Job 42. You know, the background of, of this statement is, is God comes to Job and God says, gird up your loins like a man. When God says, gird up your loins like a man, you know you're in trouble. And he gives him this list of things that, that essentially says, Job is not God and God is God. And at the end of all that, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. For we all know well the story of the call of Isaiah, who came and saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and lifted up, and, and the foundations of the threshold shook, and the house was filled with smoke. And the, the seraphim called to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with glory. And, and what is Isaiah's response? Again, I'm a sinner, a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know that one, huh? <laughs> and then he, he, he doesn't know what to do, and the seraphim takes that, that coal and he brings it to him and he touches his lips and he says, your sin is atoned for, your guilt is taken away. Another example is, is when Jesus is, um, tells, tells the fishermen to put the nets on the other side of the boat and they haul in this huge catch they'd fished all night, threw them on the other side of the boat, they caught all these fish, and Peter sees it and he goes, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's the proper response when we encounter God. The holiness of God exposes our sin. 
And I think we, we tend to suppose that God is something like us, just a, even a little bit, that God is like us. But when we realize that there, the gulf that divides us and God is really an infinite expanse, when we understand that, then we really get the gospel. So this morning in light of the reality of the sinners that we are, I want us to start to get our heads around a little bit the infinite justice of God and the perfect mercy of God. And we want to see how those come together plainly at the cross of Jesus. So you'll notice in Romans 3, Paul is is very concerned with righteousness and justice, and it's the righteousness and justice specifically of God. It says, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, he says. He says, this was to show God's righteousness, to show his righteousness at the present time, and that he might be just and the justifier. That word just and righteous is the same word in, in Greek. So here's the question that we come to is, can God forgive sins without a penalty? Can he just let it go? I, I've heard that. People say, well, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. He can just let it go. He can just forgive any sin he wants. Deuteronomy 32, 39 through 41. See now, God says, that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and I will repay those who hate me. God is perfectly holy. He is pure. He is totally set apart. And sin is a rebellion on an infinite scale because God is infinitely holy. One sin and an against an infinitely holy God is an infinite sin. So no, God cannot just forgive sin without penalty. He can't just let it go. He is, in fact, the good judge. And the classic illustration of the good judge is, you know, the, somebody kills your mother, you go to court, and then the judge says, well, I'm a benevolent guy. I think I'll just let him off. Well, the murderer might think he's benevolent, but no one else would. He, that man is a horrible judge. He's a joke. He's not a judge at all. He would be more of a stooge with a robe and a mallet. God is a good judge. He's perfectly righteous. And that really should give us pause. I, I want to steal a great illustration from uh, Paul Washer. He said he was going to preach to a secular college crowd and he didn't know what he was going to say, kind of, and he was walking up there and he was thinking about what to say. And he said to them, Do you know what the scariest truth in the universe is? He said, God is good. Mm, yep. And it was quiet. And then somebody spoke up and said, Well, what's wrong with that? And he said, He is good and you are not. 
See, we want justice in the world. We, we see at injustice. If the government is unjust, if the laws are unjust, the building codes are unjust, and yes, they are, and the zoning laws. Amen, Brian? Yes. <laughs> or my neighbor is unjust. He borrowed my weed whacker and broke it and didn't pay me back for it. We get all in a fluff. We decry, we call out for justice. Who will bring down the wicked regimes in the world? How long will the abortion doctors go unabated? People take advantage and get wealthy off the innocent and the poor. Who's going to make them pay? We're indignant at that. Injustice. We want justice. We demand justice. So again, can God forgive sins without issuing a just penalty? Is He a good judge? That's the question. So, Do we want justice from God? We need to answer that question very slowly. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is good and we are not. A call for justice is a call for me to be cast into eternal flames because sin makes me an enemy of God. All have turned aside. No one seeks for God. No one does good, not even one. So when we enter this world, we enter with our fists of rebellion raised high. In sin did my mother conceive me. In Adam all have sinned and and died. The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopards his spots? Then also you can do good who are accustomed to do evil. The wages of sin is death. So here's, here's the bottom line, is that we're not on God's good side in our fallen state. And the common perception, I think, in the world is you know, I try hard to do what's right and what's good, and really God is more like a warm pair of, of fuzzy bunny slippers. He'll cover any of my goof-ups, but we're, he and I, we're good. I love this quote I was reading last night from A.W. Pink's um, The uh, Attributes of God, which is a great book. I recommend it. And he said in the section on the holiness of God, he says this, The God which the vast majority of professing Christians love is looked upon very much like an indulgent old man who himself has no relish for folly, but leniently winks at the indiscretions of youth. But the word says, you hate all workers of iniquity, Psalm 5. And again, God is angry with the wicked every day, Psalm 7, 11. But men refuse to believe in God and gnash their teeth when his, ha- when his hatred of sin is faithfully pressed upon their attention. No sinful man was more likely to devise a holy God than to create the lake of fire in which he will be tormented forever and ever. So I ask again, do we really want justice from God? I confess that I myself do not want justice from God because that means me going to hell. Neither do I want injustice because the justice of God is wonderful. So to steal from Dr. Sproul, what I want is non-justice. 
One category of non-justice is injustice, but the other category of non-justice is mercy. I want mercy. Mercy is that withholding of a, a just penalty. Spurgeon had a great illustration. He says, when you go to God, ask for mercy, not justice. A mother went to the Emperor Napoleon to ask for mercy for her son. He had committed some breach of the French law, and the Emperor replied, Madam, this is the second time the boy has offended. Justice requires that he should die. She answers, I did not come to ask for justice. I beg for mercy. He answered, he does not deserve mercy. (laughs) Sire, she said, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. I ask for mercy. When she put it that way, the emperor replied, well then, I will have mercy. Mercy is unmerited. God is merciful. He is mercy. Exodus says he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You read that over and over again through the Bible, that same line. Psalm 116, 5 through 9. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. God is the source of all mercy. Anything that can be called mercy or grace comes from God. He is the fountain of mercy. He's not bound by any external rule of mercy. It's not as though there's these list of rules that God must adhere to that you know, mercy, grace, those are good things, and God needs to live up to those. He's not bound by an external rule, but you might say he's bound internally by his own character and attributes, which truly is the height of freedom. Therefore, he must exercise justice because he is just, and he also must be merciful because he is mercy. And by the way, in my, in my opinion, that's a big part of the answer to the question, why did God let sin into the world? Because how could he display his attributes of mercy and grace if there was no sin in the world? Those are part of his very being. And he displays those to us in the gospel. So he is just, as seen in all the punishment of sin, and he is merciful. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So he's just and he's merciful. And I hope that those two things leave something unresolved in your mind because we haven't got to Jesus yet. How can God be just and merciful? And yet that is what we find. In Exodus, what I said before, where, it's, it, where it reads, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of merciful, and is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast fast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But then here's the flip side of the coin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on children's children to the third and fourth generation. Similarly, that just juxtaposition in Psalm uh, 116, gracious is the Lord and righteous. It's interesting. I was trying to look through for texts about mercy because I was going to talk about mercy. And every, every text I found that talked about mercy also had his justice glued right to it. <laughs> they go hand in hand, and yet they're counterintuitive. How do they fit with one another? This is what has often been called a divine dilemma, which I don't like that terminology. It's our own inability to comprehend God. But it is something of a, of a conundrum. How can God be totally just, totally holy, forgive sins, and be merciful? And the solution, if you'll pardon that term, is Christmas. It's the Incarnation. Mankind could not pay the debt that we owed. And we needed someone else to pay the bill for us, to take the penalty on our behalf to satisfy divine justice. You get a picture of this in Genesis when when Abraham brings Isaac up to the altar and and he's about to kill his son uh, Isaac and then there's provided for him the ram stuck in the thicket. This substitute, this other ram to satisfy the need. Or we see throughout the Old Testament the sacrifice of bulls and of goats for the forgiveness of sins. But as we read in Hebrews, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So there was one true substitute. We need that better substitute, the one and only actual substitute who takes away sins. The incarnate one. The only possible substitute was the God-man. He had to be a man because only a man can pay for, for man's sin. And yet he had to be pure, perfect, and spotless. He had to be able to bear the infinite cup of wrath. And he had to be able to drink every last drop. No mere man can drink every last drop of God's wrath and go on to raise from the dead and to ascend on high. So it had to be God, so it had to be man, and it had to be God. The God-man is the only possible substitute. So, in love, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, as we read and confessed just a little bit ago, offered himself as a penal substitutionary atonement for the sins of his people, propitiating the wrath of God and satisfying the justice of God and was victorious over sin, death, and Satan. We read in Isaiah 53, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And he says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. That's the propitiating of the wrath of God. He sees the anguish of Jesus Christ drinking the cup of his wrath, And he's satisfied. He says, that's good enough. And we need to keep our focus on that that he satisfied the wrath of God. Because I think I've heard so many Good Friday sermons where they they go through the whole thing of, of everything Jesus went through, his trial, his being whipped, the nails being driven through his hand. And I had a professor in seminary who told us about the sack of Jerusalem, I think, 
and it said that people were trying to escape and they would take them and crucify them in different positions, experimenting with them all around the city. So my point is, many people have felt the sting of nails going through their hands. No one has experienced the full cup of God's wrath. That is what Jesus took for us. Isaiah 53 goes on, By his knowledge the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So that penal substitutionary atonement, penal means he bore the penalty. He took the penalty for us. And he's the substitute, substitutionary. He is vicarious. He swapped places with us. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit through faith. So if you read through Deuteronomy and you get to chapters 27 and 28, you get to read the curses and the blessings for keeping the law of God. And in God's covenants, there's always curses and there's blessings. If you fail, you are cursed. If you succeed, you are blessed. We've all failed to keep the law, and therefore we are cursed in ourselves. And it says, He became a curse for us. He took those covenant curses upon Himself. He bore the curses and gave us the blessings that we read about in Ephesians chapter 1, 2. He became a curse for us. And then now back to Romans 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. So, so we see that divine justice, it says it's manifested. It's revealed to us in this gospel. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets do bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So we have the justice, now we see the mercy, the propitiation of Jesus Christ shedding his blood on our behalf. And he goes on to say, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So in a sense we could say, if we look through the Old Testament, there were sins he let go on the basis of, what, blood and goats? (laughs) Blood of goats and, and bulls? He passed over them. Is that just? That would be the accusation. But he says through Jesus, through this act of righteousness and mercy, he has displayed his righteousness. It says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This was to show his righteousness, it says. To show it, to display it. Redemption, our redemption is to God's glory. A couple of weeks ago, I I pointed out that the redemption of a particular people of God is 
God's greatest work, greater even than building the universe at 13 point whatever billion light years across with billions and trillions of galaxies. The redemption of a particular people is a greater work. As we read in Ephesians, the church is there to display God's wisdom to the celestial beings. So Christmas time is when we celebrate that arrival of Jesus. We need to remember the reason that he came. The reason that he came was to die, to be our substitute, to bear our penalty, and to satisfy divine justice, to, and also to be that arm of God's mercy and to glorify God by being his righteousness. And our response then would be awe. <laughs> Nothing else than awe and worship and to, to do what he purposed in it, to, to produce his own glory. We glorify God. We proclaim that wisdom. We go on to tell people of this great gospel of the penal substitution of Jesus who took our place. And we live that sacrificial life of thanksgiving and revel and rest in knowing that you believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and that your debt is paid in full. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Amen.